Um, before we get into it this morning, uh, we, we're going to be in James 3. Um, and I, I, want, I was just actually thinking about this as I was just trying to prep my mind and my heart <clears throat> um, during that last worship song, which is pretty standard for most preachers, right? I'm just refocusing, thinking through things, praying. And I got to think about how this sermon, well, there's sermons that you like and sermons that you don't like. This is a sermon I don't like um, because it doesn't flow the way that I would desire a sermon to flow. <laughs> um, it's a little janky, uh, kind of like what I hear our Facebook feed is right now, which is not just, it's not our issue, it's a Facebook issue, but um, it's janky, or if you are super Dutch, uh, this sermon is a little whopper jod. Um, and I think that's because, well, I'll put it this way. Will, you can cut all this out of the sermon posting if you want, because it's really... Um, <laughs> you ever watch a movie trilogy, but that second movie is just like, mm, right? It's more transitional. Uh, like I, the one that comes to my mind is like Back to the Future 2, where you're like, that was irrelevant. Um, it got us to Back to the Future 3, but it really didn't. It didn't. Okay, so Biff took the almanac, whatever. Spoiler <laughs> alert, I'm sorry. Um, but you know what I'm talking about? Where the second movie, that transitional story, um, sometimes feels disjointed. Well, that's kind of what we're experiencing here in James 3. Um, and you'll understand and we're going to cover it all because it's all really important. James is setting up where he's going to go in, in James 4 and James 5, but he doesn't want us to forget where we've been. So with that in mind, if it feels disjointed, you can blame me, but you should also blame James. <laughs> <clears throat> a group of elderly friends gather for a dinner. And after um, they, they, they gather after spending considerable time apart. I mean, life happens. Some moved away. Some, some have moved into the neighborhoods. They've, but they've all... Um, they've all known one another since high school, and, and when the time uh, comes where they're all in a similar place at the same time, they like to get together and eat. This elderly group of people, they share about their joyous adventures, they share uh, about the things that have happened, they make it a big communal affair, it's an event. Um, after dinner, uh, these friends, they disperse throughout the host's home. Uh, some will resign to the, uh, the table in the dining room, which uh, I don't know if they ate elsewhere if they're resigning to the table, but that's what I said. So they go to the table in the dining room and they have a cup of coffee and some coffee cake. We know what that's like around here. Um, some of them, uh, they go to the den and they start working on a puzzle together, just chatting and, and enjoying their time. And then there are others that go into uh, the living room, the family room, the TV room, whatever. They put on the game or sports center. They recline in their lounge chairs and they talk until one, if not all of them, fall asleep, right? <laughs> this is all going on in the host's home. <laughs> one of the men who is actually sitting in a lazy boy watching the the highlights of the day's game, he, he, he engages in conversation with the others in the room, and he says, hey, um, yeah, really good to be back in town. Good to see all of you. Last night, um, last night, we went out to that new restaurant in town. I'm talking about his spouse and himself. He says, we went out to that restaurant in town, and um, that was really good. Have you, uh, have you been there? If you haven't, I could, I, it's worth trying out. It wasn't here last time we were here, but it's, it's really good. One of the others in the room says, well, what? What restaurant are you talking about? The man thinks for a moment. It's, um, what's the name of that flower that you give someone that you're sweet on? The, the flower that has like the roses? Or no, excuse me, I just messed it up. <laughs> the flower that has the thorns? You would have known it anyway. What is it? It's a carnation. No, it's, um, 
The rose that has its thorn? The guy goes, um, you mean roses? <laughs> and he goes, yes, roses. And the man leans back in his chair and he looks towards the rest of his house and he goes, hey, Rose, what was the name of the restaurant we went to last night? No? Okay, great. Now, what's the point of this story that I just butchered? You know, let's start again. So there's an elderly group of people. What's the point of this story? Is it about the importance of relationships since they all came together? Uh, Is it about fellowship around a table? Is it about uh, forgetfulness, maybe? Um, Is it about growing older? What is this story really about? Well, depending on how this story is used, um, if it's used accurately, um, it can be about any of those things, right? Um, But I share it with you this morning to highlight maturity. Maturity. Oftentimes we we tie uh, maturity and age or experience together. I mean, in our, in our country, the way that we view some things like the, the, uh, the movie rating system, right? We have standards when it comes to movie ratings. We say that your maturity must be that of a 13-year-old in order to watch a certain movie by yourself. Um, otherwise, parental guidance is suggested. suggested. You, or you must be like 17 or older in order to buy a ticket to, uh, to view a rated R film in the theater uh, and to go by yourself. We have laws about what age one becomes mature enough to drive an automobile or to open a bank account on their own or to buy a lottery ticket and a slew of other things. So often, we tie maturity in our, in our understanding, our culture, we tie maturity to age. So much so that I found this interesting, that we also tie immaturity to that of being like a child. In fact, did you know that immature and childish are synonyms in the English language? And if that's the case, if that's actually true, that makes understanding Matthew 18, 3, Mark 10, 14, and Luke 8, 17 a bit, a bit more difficult because Jesus says, unless you change and have faith like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so Jesus just wants us to be a whole bunch of immature rugrats. Well, no, that's not the case because it gets even more confusing when we consider Luke 8, 4, when Jesus talks about the importance of our, the fruit of our faith maturing. So which is it, Jesus? <laughs> Faith like a child, immaturity, or faith that's mature? Well, see, I would just contend that maybe we've messed up our understanding of maturity and thus immaturity and childishness. When they're linked to age, we can't possibly have a faith that is both the faith of a child and mature in its fruitfulness. That doesn't work. Thankfully, maturity isn't correlated to age, uh, at least not primarily. The story of our dinner party, uh, it doesn't put maturity on display because it's an elderly group of people uh, eating together. No, it's an example of maturity because when faced with a question that the man cannot seem to answer, the, a question that he can't grasp the answer to in that moment, um, he knew precisely what to do to accomplish what was necessary to figure it out. And in comedic fashion, he needed assistance remembering his spouse's name so he could ask her what the restaurant's name was, right? Way funnier if I don't mess it up. (laughs) But that's on me. That's because maturity is essentially a level of mental development or wisdom that has bearing on every area of an individual's life. 
So that means that maturity is knowing our limitations, knowing how to navigate them, and knowing how to resolve issues, how to act, how to live, how to interact with ourselves and others, given the tools that we have at our disposal. Does this make sense? I'm going to take your silence as a yes. So having a faith like a child, having faith like a child is trusting and believing even, even when we don't have the answers, right? We understand that part. Faith like a child, trusting and believing even when we don't have the answers. And spiritual maturity, that faith that is mature, is knowing how to live out our faith practically, tangibly, with the end goal in mind. Knowing the end goal. So believing even though we don't know, but also living like we do know. Knowing how to interact with one another and the world in order to get to a certain end goal. Spiritual maturity is self-awareness. It's, it's personal development. It's communal dependence to a certain extent, all wrapped into one because none of us have all the tools, right, to succeed on our own in life or in faith. We all need to ask somebody what our spouse's name is from time to time. We need each other, and we need our God. In James' letter, uh, he covers a way, he covers many ways, actually, that we can mature as Christians, as siblings in Christ, as those who are directly tied to the one true king. These are these practical living elements, right, that we're focusing on in this series. The first two chapters cover growth through trials, and, and it talks about growth by, by the knowledge of God's word, but also the application of the word in our life and actions, or time and time again, James, you're so sick of me saying this, but it's so true. James uses the truth of what's happening in the church and the culture of that time to set up the truth that Jesus offers us. He's giving the example. Remember, he said, y'all are bickering. Jesus says, don't, right? He goes on and says, y'all are hearing the word. Jesus says, hear and do. He sets up the truth of a situation going on in their lives to then land on the truth of Jesus. And chapter three is no different. Chapter three adds another layer to our practical living and maturity by talking about how we use our words, about how we generally speak, speak to or speak about others, all with an end goal in mind. Because the quality and the contents of your speech reveals, reveals how much you let God, godly wisdom truly mature you. Simply put, James is reminding us, he's using specifics, that we cannot just unwrap the big gift at Christmas, see the picture on the side, and know how to put it together. That's what James is reminding us of. Did any of you, any of you who have maybe nieces or nephews or children of your own, or maybe you have a younger sibling, maybe you're just an adult and, and, and you got something that you have to put together, and, you, and that, that gift is open at Christmas, and you see the picture on the side, and you're like, I'm so excited, and you open the box, and you go, how the heck am I going to put it together? <clears throat> and you dump it out. I'm telling you what, you might think you can put it together without looking at the instructions. You can't. You ever bought anything from Ikea? They don't put spare parts in the box. I know you think they do. They don't. Sometimes we need to look at the diagrams and the instructions. Sometimes we even need to ask for help. And that's what James is doing here. So let's grab the instructions of our, of our faith out of the trash bin. Let's grab the instructions of our practical living out of the trash bin this morning. Let's look how we, how we should mature in our faith with the end goal in mind. James 3. It'll be on the screen. 
When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James minces no words here when he describes the power of the tongue. Obviously, there are some issues going on with the original audience of the author. People are saying some stuff. Issues going on revolving around what people have said, are saying, and are going to say to one another, but also from the pulpit. There are some communication issues on how people interact, but also what's being taught, what is being said by other siblings in Christ to one another and to the world. There are things going on when it comes to words. Words are the problem. Truth is, James is using this to set up something more, right? This is the standard. He's using a truth of what's happening to set up a truth of Jesus. And when it comes to the tongue, nothing else in our world has destroyed more marriages, ruined more friendships, launched more wars, divided more people, degraded more people, or destroyed like the tongue. Can you agree? It's a powerful reality, possibly the most powerful reality that we attempt to control is our tongue. And while the tongue can be dangerous, uh, let's not paint a, a picture saying that communication, that our tongue is inherently evil. No, the power of the tongue can be dangerous, but it also can be really good. It can produce harm, but it can produce good as well. We must be mindful of Christ's words in Matthew 15, 18, when he says, but what comes out of the mouth also comes from the heart. Let's just sit in that for a second. Today, um, I think it would probably be fair to say that we could also say that what comes out of the keyboard comes out of the heart. It's not all too often where people say hurtful things to your face, am I right? I mean, it happens, but it happens on a, on a much more rare occurrence. It happens far more often today behind an OLED screen. We all know people who would certainly be kind to our face, but we wouldn't be surprised if they lit us up in text or email or social media. And this is not how we're supposed to behave. When we let digital anonymity lull us into a sense of safety to the point where we become harsh and abusive with what we type, and we've let our words become this raging fire. We've let our words become unrighteous. The tongue controls what comes out of the mouth, and what comes from the mouth comes from the heart. The thing is, today, our tongues also know how to type. A friend of mine um, <laughs> posted on their social media, this friend is a non-believer, and this, 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 I'm going to read to you what they wrote, but I'm also going to assure you that they were not talking about me. How do I know? Because I, um, I apologized, and then I asked... <laughs> Where'd I, where'd I miss the mark? And they said, it's not you. I mean, but it could have been, because we're all fallen. My friend posted this. It says, you treat people like garbage, talking about others like they have no value, and you worship God at the same time, yet you want me to have faith like you. No, thank you. Verse six, let's jump back in. 
The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself, sets, it itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? The truth James is using here is the reality of our speech, which is a direct indicator of the reality of the state of our hearts. Our intentions might be pure in what we say. I had this with my children all the time. My intentions are pure. But the impact is different. I might intend to help. We might intend to teach. We might intend to show love. But all too often, that impact is far different. The impact of our words on others too often fails to communicate our actual intentions. And instead, it puts on display the pain, the hurt, the frustration, the selfishness that resides in the flesh of our hearts. Sure, all kinds of animals have been tamed, but no human, no human can tame its own tongue. Our tongue is restless, and maturity knows this. Better yet, maturity accounts for it with an end goal in mind with a specific result we as believers must seek because a spring does not pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening. Well, then what are we seeking? What's the end goal? What's the end goal, James? What are you getting at here? If the instructions say to watch your tongue and here's why, then what's the picture on the side of the toy box, James? Thanks for giving us the instruction. Let me see what we're going to make. What are we seeking to accomplish? James 3, let's pick back up verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits without favoritism and hypocrisy. Okay, I love what James is doing here. Reminding us of all the things that he's already told us in chapters 1 and 2. Be hearers and doers. Be full of mercy, not full of judgment. Don't show favoritism. And then he says this, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Peace, fruit, evidence of your faith, your belief put on display by your lack of prejudice, by how you use your speech, and in the humility you show towards others and God, which humility is where James is transitioning into. Holy cow, Seth, I just butt bumped this thing. At least it wasn't the bass. At least it wasn't the bass. You'd rather me tip over your computer than the bass? No, it's not my computer. Oh, then we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> James is starting to transition us into chapter 4 where he's going to lean into humility. And we'll hear about that next week. So make no mistake, an uncontrolled tongue is a sign of foolishness in God's eyes. It says, in any given situation, are your words gentle? Are they full of mercy? Do they resist prejudice and bias? Do they encourage peace? Do they cultivate peace? 
That's the end goal. That's the picture on the side of the box. Peace. Want to practically live your faith? Here are all sorts of elements of that. This is what maturity looks like. Here's what to look out for. Here's what to lean into. And what's the picture on the side of the box? What is spiritually, what is being spiritually mature? What does practically living your faith look like in this world? It looks like cultivating peace. And the instruction manual says, yeah, you got to look at your tongue. You got to look at your words because it's evil in its nature. It's evil in its nature when it was actually designed to, relieve, to reveal the righteousness and the goodness and the love of our God. The practically living out of our faith requires maturity. Not a maturity that is calculated by age, but maturity that is calculated by knowing what is necessary to get to what we need to accomplish. We know that we need to tame the tongue to consider our words, but do we truly understand what needs to be accomplished? I just told you what the side of the box is. It's peace. It's cultivating peace. And we know we need to tame our tongue to get to that. But do we understand the picture on the side of the box? Do we understand what peace is? One of my children got a thing of Lego, which I called Legos forever, but apparently it's not. But I will say that all of you um, should be happy to know that I saw that even though you call, um, since maybe you call Myers Myers with an S and it says Meyer on the side of the building, it actually used to have a sign that says Myers with an S, so you're still right. But Lego does not have an S on it. They got a thing of Lego for Christmas, <laughs> not from us, because I'm not foolish enough to, those are landmines in the middle of the night. I'm not doing that. It's a terrible investment. They got, they, they got this Lego package, and, and I was like, oh, hey, uh, that's a really cool dinosaur, is what I said. I was corrected, because that was no dinosaur. Um, that was some kind of a dragon from Minecraft or something, for something that I don't know. Um, and I was shamed for the fact that I could not distinguish the difference between a dinosaur and a dragon, um, a T-Rex or something a T-Rex with wings. Like, how am I supposed to know? I was reading the other day that maybe dinosaurs had feathers. Thank you, Michael Crichton, for messing that up for me. Like, I don't know what's true and what's not true, but I was informed that I didn't understand the picture on the side of the box. And I'm wondering if we do the same thing with peace. If we misunderstand the idea of maturity and unintentionally think that age means mature as opposed to what well, maturity actually means, knowing how to get to the end goal. Man, we better make sure that we don't misunderstand the end goal. Peace. Because even if we know where we're going, if it's not the right spot on the map, we're in trouble. If I'm trying to get to the farmhouse and I end up in tuberculosis, I've taken the wrong path. Peace. What's that? Hmm. No, it's, it's true. <laughs> Peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. And the Greek word used most often is irene. The root meaning of both of these words in their ancient language is completeness. It's this well-being, but it's not limited to well-being, right? It's the idea that all things work together the way that they were intended. That's peace. 
It's vigor, it's vitality in life, it's holistic. It's the way that God created things to be. Peace is a large word for embracing God's goodness, a wholeness and a goodness. It's also the definition of the abundant life that Jesus promises us in John 10, 10. Peace is so much larger. It's so much more encompassing than what we understand today. Today, we view peace as a ceasefire, am I right? We view peace as truce. But there's a great difference between peace and truce. There's a great difference between two people interacting with one another in the way that God intended and two people just not fighting but holding weapons in their hands. There's a great difference. We say things like, just keep the peace, which assumes peace only means just don't fight. When I tell my kids, can we just have some peace? All I mean is stop fighting. Sadly, I don't mean interact the way that God intended you to interact. First of all, because I don't want to start a debate, because most of them are smarter than me, and that's going to be a whole thing. But really, I just want them to stop fighting. Were you aware that peace, shalom, irene, is the deepest desire and need of the human heart? Yes, I know, we need God, right? You're thinking, ooh, Nate's a heretic, got him. No, you didn't, because God is peace. When I find myself wondering, where's the blessing of God's presence in my life? I need to remember that God is shalom. God is irene. God is peace. And we're told in the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah, we are told that this peace is a gift of God. It's not a gift from God. I didn't misspeak. This is peace is a gift of God, God's self to us. It's presence. It's a specific blessing that we get to live within and around, that we are never alone, all things working together the way that they are intended. Peace is a gift we get to participate in. Sure, peace has all sorts of nuances, right? Wholeness, well-being, prosperity, security, so on and so forth. But the nuances of peace are all associated with God's presence. God's presence with God's people in God's creation because that's the way the creator intended it. Think of the creation story. Human beings at peace with one another and at peace with God. All of them, walking, talking in the garden, hanging out, probably playing euchre. And what's the first thing that happens after the fall? We see shame, we, sh- we, see, we see guilt, but we also see the first pissing match between humanity when it's like, who made who bite the fruit first? He did it, no, she did it, me. Who was to blame? The first thing we see in the fall, what is that? Peace lost. Not interacting together the way that God intended. Hiding from God, not interacting with God the way God intended. Peace lost. But in Jesus, peace is not only found, but it's offered to creation yet again. Let me give you an example. Aaliyah, I need your help. I'll give you an example. <laughs> of peace loss and peace completed. <clears throat> Would you play a scale for us? Thank you. Full scale? Yeah, full scale, please. <laughs> Just the whole shebang. Beautiful. <laughs> now do me a favor. I want you to demonstrate a lack of peace to everyone here. I want you to play the scale and don't resolve it. Leave off the last note. 
feel that? Seriously, do you feel that? Do it one more time. Feel it. Do you feel that? Do it again. Oh, do it again. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> That's how we walk through life. We know what we need. We know we need peace. We can hear it in our heads. Uh, Aaliyah, play the note. That was me trying to sing the note. See how bad that is, Drew? Even on your worst days, you are a thousand times better than me. You're welcome. That's not really a compliment, but I meant it to be, and I'm sorry. I think you're amazing. We hear that, and we go, just play the dang note, Aaliyah. We know what we need. We know what we want. We know what's going to make everything right again. But instead, we sit in this tension. We sit in this unresolved nature of the world and ourselves, and we seek, we seek the absence of disagreement. We seek the absence of pain. We seek the absence of difficult conversations. We seek the absence of our personal growth, even at times, and our development. And we, want, and we do it all in the name of peace. Life will be peaceful if all those things just went away, but in reality, what we're experiencing is not an absence of other things that leads to peace. We're experiencing an absence of peace. It's not resolved. How about you just play that again and resolve it for us? Because, hold on, no, actually, don't play it yet. <clears throat> because I almost did it again, Drew. I just saved its life. When we play this scale, we're missing peace. We're missing the resolution in our life. We would look at this scale and we'd go, oh, let's take away another note. Maybe that will lead to peace. No. It's not taking things away that lead to peace. It's adding peace that leads to peace. So resolve it for us once, would you? Thank you. Yeah, good job. You can sit down. I might call you up again in a minute. In Jesus Christ, the one who is peace, we have the opportunity to resolve the tension, to cultivate peace, not only in ourselves, but in the world around us. Not by taking things away in our life, but by, but by participating in the restoration and the reconciliation of this world. A world that's full of hurt and pain and wants it all to go away. It wants, it wants to go back to the way things were designed to be. And we get to cultivate peace, not by removing things, but by bringing peace into situations, into our lives, into our relationships. Playing the note of resolution as opposed to leaving the scale unresolved. I'm sure you've heard this dad joke because of all dad jokes, this is not a good one. Actually, I've got two. <laughs> One has nothing to do with anything that I've told Doug like three times already, and I've told the staff too. They didn't think it was funny, but I'm going to tell you that one first. And then the second one actually has to do with the sermon. Um, wow, Nate's got, <laughs> Nate preaches two more times. He just doesn't care how long he's up here anymore. No, he doesn't. Here's a terrible dad joke. Why does Jesus not wear any jewelry? Why? Because he breaks every chain. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Thank you. I'm not the only childish person in the room. But you know, this terrible dad joke is how do you eat an elephant? Dude, thank you. One bite at a time. Somebody, hold on, Connie knew it, so Tim. Yep, Tim, you got the <laughs> terrible jokes just like me. One bite at a time. And you know the same is true with peace? We don't change our lives or the, or the world right away very easily. It takes time and it takes practice and it takes patience and it takes effort. Spiritual maturity takes time and it takes practice and it takes patience and it takes effort. But don't forget that um, <clears throat> you are not an individual. You're the church. We are a people. 
more than just this room too. Uh, we, are, we are called Christians, little Christ, the body of Jesus himself, his hands and his feet, the presence of Jesus in this place today, this world, each of us filled with the Holy Spirit to go and be loved, to go and cultivate peace, to be ambassadors of God's fullness. We are the church that spans beyond time and place, spread out across the world and across history. Can you imagine how fast a group of people like that could eat an elephant? Everyone would just need to take one bite, if that. As he practically living, it's not only individual, it's also communal. It takes all of us making the little faithful moves in our own life so that collaboratively God can reconcile and restore creation with our help. He chooses to use us. We quite literally get to usher in the kingdom of God. We get to usher in shalom, irene, peace here as it is in heaven. but we must be aware of ourselves, our tongues, our hearts, and we need to know what we're seeking after. We need to know what we're running after. We need to know peace if we are to cultivate it and practically live it out. It's more than a ceasefire. It's a wholeness of the way God wants things to be. We need to spiritually mature. Close with this. Cornelius Platinga, (coughs) who... Do we have the image of him? I know, he looks so somber. He's actually a very smiley, nice guy, but this is the only picture of the black background that I could find. He's the president emeritus of Calvin Seminary and a senior research fellow at Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. worship. (laughs) He says this, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is a state of being. It's a state of practically living out our faith. It's the end goal. That's what we're aiming at. It's the presence of our God with us. It's the presence of our God changing us. And it's the presence of our God through us. That's peace. Lee, I hope you play that scale for us again. And do me a favor. Leave it unresolved just for a second and then resolve it, would you? Because I want to feel that tension again. (laughs) That's That's cultivating peace. In your life, in the lives of others, and in all creation. So yes, watch your tongue. And check your heart, but seek peace, be peace, and live. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you are better than we know. And the more I seek after you, the more you show me where I've settled for easy answers sometimes. Um, Lord, thank you. 
that peace is more than we can fathom. Thank you that that's the end goal, and thank you for the fact that you've invited us into cultivating it, knowing that your peace is your presence. We have been tasked to mature to a point where we can usher in your presence. Man, we don't deserve that. Lord, first change us, that through us you might change the world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.